Hey everybody, Jeremy here. Just want to give you a quick note before the episode starts. We originally spliced in some audio from public access that had background music. Apparently music still isn't okay with some platforms, even from a public access source, so we had to improvise. We have replaced the original recordings with us reading them in the style of an old-timey news reporter. Links will of course be in the show notes if you want to hear the original audio. And now that you know, on with the show. Be ran a coffee in a microphone podcast. That's <laughs> pretty much. Welcome to the edge of nowhere. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special 21st episode of the Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere podcast. Get this podcast a beer, episode 21. I am your host, Jeremy Carr, here along with my co-host and the Han Tamai Chewy, Mr. Matt Ozero, a.k.a. The Moz. How are we doing today, Moz? No complaints. Had to get the Han and Chewy in for the final probe arc episode here yeah poor theory you got the chewy thing going that's good yeah yeah so uh just before we started recording we went to get our old business notes together and we have completely lost track of our old business if there's anything you think we need to correct or missed or anything like that please send us an email at monsterloretour at gmail.com or you can hit us up on facebook monster lore tour podcast on facebook i have old business what's that i'm kind of hairy too i think it should be my chewy to my chewer year Mm, yeah. The uh, Ewok to my Ewok to my Wookie. Wookie. Yeah. Ooh, the Ewok to my Wookie. That would actually be pretty good. Yep. Should it's I do scary. it again? <laughs> <laughs> nah, Han and Chewie need the shout it's out. All good. And you get to be Han Solo, dude. Like, I should why, never complain I should about not that. Complain about never that. complain about that. Yeah. I get the princess. But before we jump in here, uh, just gonna ask you to take a quick moment to hit all those happy little fun buttons: the like, subscribe, follow, share, whatever they got on the platform you're listening on. And if you get a chance to leave us a quick rating and review, that would be most helpful and appreciated. All that really helps us out with the algorithms. So thank you for doing that. I'm going to just jump in with a a preemptive Mad Cujo's award here. We can do that. As this is the conclusion of our Alien Probe's double-double parter, which sprung out of the double parter UAP episode. It's the arc I've been on. I am giving this Mad Cujo's award to the OG of Spacely Overseers. Leica, the original cosmonaut. Leica, the original cosmonaut. For those who may be unaware, Leica was a dog that the, the Russians one launched that they into put space. Up and he's, yeah, and he's as a proof of concept before they sent people up. Still, yeah. And sadly, yeah, there was no return trip for Leica. She's still up there watching us. So this one's for you, Leica. Ah, boy. Hey, but can we give Mad Cujo's to a 
uh, giving mad cujos to a dead dog could have pet cemetery implications. <laughs> I'm just maybe we'll bring her back. Yeah. Maz. It's gonna be like and because it, it's in space, maybe it'll be more like a Venn horizon. I just thought it made it more fitting. Yeah. You know? Or, or in the case we're in. More and, or less fitting. And like the first <laughs> earthling that we know of might get into that more in season two. But the first earthling we know of to go into space was Lyca the dog. Right. Like that's pretty good. She, she definitely gets a mad cujos for that. Uh, no argument. Dog or no dog. Mad yeah. cujos. I was just talking about the the Sithri implications of what even mad cujos <laughs> is. We haven't really discussed the spell we're weaving with that. This is the monster lore to our podcast, yeah, Boz. Exactly. Okay, let's actually get into it now then. Uh, we still have a whole lot of stuff to poke at in this final probes episode. So let's dive in head first, shall we, Moz? Sure. So we left off last episode on the question, what are Von Neumann probes? This is last week's episode, by okay. the way. These are back-to-back. So if you missed it, you can jump back or just follow along. But let's get into the Von Neumann probes. Von Neumann probes are named for the man who created the theory behind them, John Von Neumann. John Von Neumann was an American mathematician, physicist, computer scientist, engineer, and polymath and was regarded as the best mathematical mind of his time. He made major contributions to many fields of science, including mathematics, physics, economics, computing, and statistics, and served as a member of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. This guy had mad chops. So what is this theory of von Neumann probes? Let's turn to the PBS Space-Time YouTube channel, for an explanation of the theory. Link will be in the show notes. Self-replicating robotic spacecraft. That's right. Completely unmanned or uncurbled vessels capable of traveling between star systems and capable of extracting resources at their destinations to build copies of themselves to continue exploration of the galaxy. So you see, one of the mathematical proofs John von Neumann pioneered was that the most efficient way for an advanced civilization to explore, mine, and potentially colonize their galaxy, and ultimately even the universe, was not through personal exploration, but through self-replicating spacecraft. This takes me back to the conclusions at the end of my previous UAP deep dive thought experiment, actually, in a way. Episodes 6 and 7. But uh, remember we discussed how even though the theory of using a planet as a spaceship seemed feasible, it seemed logical that a species capable of such feats would be better off just building what they needed when they got there. This takes that a step further. Not only is it all built on site, but they don't even have to build it. Just send the machines to build it for you and come around when it's ready. Right. They find the natural resources there. Yeah, they mine the asteroids, they mine the moons, they mine the planets, whatever they need to get what they need to build more or whatever it is that they were sent to build. And then they say, mine, 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 and they keep going forever. Right, and the concept at work here is like we talked about before. It's like a a dandelion shedding its seeds into the wind, like what Avi Loeb and the Pentagon were talking about with the Muamua potentially. Uh But I'm going to let another expert help us out with the philosophy behind this theory. Here is Michio Kaku from the Big Think YouTube channel. Think of Mother Nature. When Mother Nature wants to propagate life, one possibility is to send out seeds. Not just one or two, but millions of seeds. Most of the seeds never make it. But one or two do, 
And as a consequence, that's how trees and forests propagate. So why not create a nanoship using nanotechnology? How big would it be? Some people like Paul Davies say it could be as big as a bread box. Other people say it could be even smaller than that. Why not something the size of a needle? And because they're so small, it wouldn't take much to accelerate them to near the speed of light. So this might seem like a far out science fiction thing to a lot of people, but it's totally possible for an advanced civilization to pull this sort of maneuver. We ourselves, us crazy headed humans, are pretty much on the brink of being able to pull this maneuver if this whole breakthrough star shot and everything that we were talking about works out. But just like the achievements we've had so far, our advances in technology. What achievements? We've got to get our dirty needles up all over some planet. And it'll be, what the heck? We have a helicopter on Mars, the beach, right? man. Earthlings are wrecking our beach. Helicopters on Mars, though. Yeah. And right now we have multiple human-made spacecraft flying at ridiculous speeds outside of our own star system. You know, like we're we're just starting, but we're getting there. And we have theories that they're working on to turn into re- reality that will make us capable of, of this in the not too distant future if they can actually figure it all out. Yeah, you said that last time. I was pretty impressed with how yeah. fast light speed kind of thing things are moving. But yeah, but so sometime, you know, long, long from now in a galaxy far, far away, some of our craft are going to become interstellar interlopers, potentially, mm-hmm. if they're on the right tack to actually hit something. Right. Here's a, a quick list of uh, what we have achieved so far. We've sent probes of all kinds to all the planets in our own star system, as well as most of their moons. We have pretty pictures of the planets we can hang on our walls and put on our phone wallpaper and everything like that. You know, We know exactly what they all look like. We've, we got real good looks at them. Like I said, we have a helicopter and a land crawler on Mars. We're sending people back to the moon in presumably the not-too-distant future. We have billionaires aiming for Mars, and Cap- T- Captain Kirk has actually gone to space. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, he had to fly commercial on Dr. Evil's cock rocket, but, you know, it's, it still counts. It's yeah, still counts. It's half credit. And our reach is extending seemingly every day at this point. And it's only going to get longer. I mean, look at the JWST and everything Hey, I like just that. realized he didn't rip his shirt, though, in that mission. That would have been cool, like, if he landed and his shirt that was ripped. That would have been cool. Oh, yeah. Can't go back. Well, we might be able to if we do the time travel episode. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry. Uh, That's my, my job, to throw you off your game. <laughs> and... Speaking of extending our reach and advancing technologies, what we were talking about with Breakthrough Starshot that I just mentioned, and we talked about pretty extensively in the previous episode, we're working on the later stages of technology needed to send scores, hundreds, ultimately hundreds of thousands, millions, who knows, of of little sailboats, basically, with tiny little cameras Mm -hmm. on a journey through interstellar space to go become watchful interstellar interlopers in other far distant skies. And it's it's a totally feasible thing. They just got to, fi- as we always say here, they just got to figure it out. Yep. The problem that they're facing is we don't have the material tech for the light sails yet. They know what they need, but they don't know how to make it yet. They don't have the material that can be that tiny and then spread out into a sail and kind of... Right, be that thin, but that rigid and... Yeah. and the, the right shape. I was actually uh, 
watching something on this. I don't think this is in my notes. I'll tangent on it. They're trying to figure out the right shape because they can't, it doesn't, you know, if it starts spinning, they're screwed. And if it, mm. like they've tried all these different shapes and it's starting to look like almost like a, uh, like a, a bowl shape right. kind of thing is what it's going to be where it's mm. almost like a parachute with the bottom of the parachute facing the sun to grab the light right. is the latest thing I've seen. But they're still working on that. But uh, right, the actual material to make it is something that they're still working on. So that this is why it's going to be a little while. Now the chips that these sails would tow, basically, the communications and camera equipment, that's already done. We can start cranking those out tomorrow. They're, they're basically like the chips in your cell phone, just a little tweaked out to make it through space. Okay, you know they're gonna be if they're tweaked out during a long space journey. That's gonna be awful. You're gonna need to get a little <laughs> tweaked out to go four point two four light years, man. Yeah, that's true. But the other thing is the laser launching system. Granted, one doesn't exist, and it's only on paper for now. But the math is done. We know what is needed, and the only reason we haven't built it yet is because we have no sails to launch. The material back to the material. Right. At least that's as far as I can tell. We'll this is very transitional the problem with things like this is at any moment they can go oh actually this isn't going to work that's that's what worries me about it but uh to get back into it basically we get the sale material locked down and we are the interlo interloper business we are in the interloper business hopefully but once the initial R&D and construction is done there's no limit to the number of these probes we could launch in any given direction all at about 20% of the speed of light and that speed could increase noticeably with improvements to the system once we have it figured out as with everything you know once you figure it out it just yeah. keeps getting better so we're so close but what about the self-replicating part can we really do that do we have that technology yeah it's crazy to think something the size of a needle might be able to recreate something bigger that's, you know, yeah. a probe on another planet. Would you believe me if I told you we basically already have this technology, Moss? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. There are 3D printers that can print their own replacement parts. Right. If they have enough food, they can just keep rebuilding themselves over and over, on and on, forever, immortal. 3D printers are the work of very dark sisters. All I'm you convinced. need is to add to that something that can go scrape the stuff off the asteroid mm -hmm. to turn into food to rebuild itself and you're in business like we basically already have this too we're very very close to this Moz. it's almost scary but i don't understand when you starting to get to like some of these things that are seven atoms thick or whatever and you're sure that's easier speed wise to get somewhere how does that become a probe on another planet that can do some of these things it's too mind-blowing well, the sale, brain. the sale concept isn't going to be actually, nothing's going to land. It's going to be basically putting a satellite in orbit right? somewhere. Uh, but to go fast, you need very small, but then you also need well, something that can Well, lightweight. It doesn't, it, it's, it's weight more than anything, mm -hmm. I think is why they're doing it that way, is uh, the lighter it is, the, the faster you can make it go. Right. The less massive, I guess I should say, because there's no actual weight in space. So, but the less mass it has, the faster it will go from whatever propulsion you hit it with, mm -hmm. you know? 
Anywho, did you know that quantum computerists can save data on a single atom, Moz? A single atom. That's where we lose my mind. Yeah, quantum physicists have discovered a method of turning single electrons into bits using cobalt atoms. Each electron of the atom carries one bit of information. That might not sound like much, but when you consider that a grain, a single grain of sand has over a thousand atoms in it, and a cobalt atom has 27 electrons in it, you can extrapolate 27,000 bits equal to 3.375 kilobytes per granule of cobalt. When you calculate that to, say, a single gram of cobalt, which has about 6 times 10 to the 23rd atoms in it, that is 6 with 23 zeros after it, Right. you can hold everything on the entire internet as it exists today on the tip of your fingertip. Dang. On the very tip of your finger, Moz. Wow. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> the whole internet, just like on the tip of your finger, on one little chip on the tip of your finger. Well, I can I can explain that web search I did in 97. <laughs> <laughs> what about the one from yesterday? For now, though, it only works in super cold temperatures, but they're working on bringing up the temperature range. You see this in recent stories about room temperature superconductors, things like that. The more things progress, the more things progress. And anyway, super low temperatures aren't much of a problem if you're talking about space-bound craft. The average temperature in outer space is 2.7 kelvins, equivalent to negative 270 Celsius, or negative 455 Fahrenheit. I don't think cold's going to be a problem either way if they're using these things in space. How close is that to absolute zero? I don't even know. What Fahrenheit? It's close. Yeah. I mean, only 2.7 kelvins. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's cold. Uh, I forget what absolute zero is, but that that's approaching it. I want to say it's like six hundred something. I'm going to Fahrenheit. Re- I'm going to restart some official old yeah. business notes. And do you have any other questions at this point, Moz? Nope. Okay. I want to make sure I'm not losing you, but we covered that pretty well. So moving on. Have you heard of Xenobots, Moz? Yeah, I, I ordered one. The Xena Warrior Princess bot. No, Zeno, <laughs> no, not Zena. They sent me to Gabriella, <laughs> and I had to send it back, and I'm waiting for the actual Zena bots is to show up. X-E-N-O bots. This is some creepy stuff right here, actually. I, I have a hard time even saying it, so I'm going to let Endgadget from YouTube explain it for us. Xenobots are effectively living robots. Biological machines designed from the ground up using skin and cardiac stem cells derived from the African frog Xenopus latus. Hence, Xenobots. That's some small-scale Jurassic Park stuff right there, Moz. Mm-hmm. Living robots programmable to specific tasks able to hold all kinds of data made out of frog cells, which is... Weird. These are a recent development just discovered a couple of years ago at the University of Vermont. And already we are seeing capabilities in these tiny living bio machines that no one was even predicting. The freakiest part is now they're replicating. Yep, tiny little biobot babies all over the place, Moz. Von, von Neumann cells. Yeah, kind of, but, but not really, though. Let, let me uh, play you some more Engadget here to explain what's going on. 
Now here's where things get really wild. The researchers have found that by replacing the pellets with individual Xenopus stem cells, the Xenobots can gather enough cells to create a second generation of themselves. Essentially, they reproduced, creating babies that would self-assemble into functional Xenobots after a brief incubation period. Now, before you freak out, understand this is not an Island of Dr. Moreau situation. This is not a new species of life that has been created by any means. At least not any more than the cells that make up your immune system are. Like white blood cells, these Xenobots are alive in the technical sense, but they are not individual organisms capable of surviving on their own, or replicating without outside assistance. Yikes. So once again... <laughs> he sounds so sure of himself. He's so happy about it. I, I think that makes it worse for me. So he's so happy about it. But once again here, we see science has created something it doesn't fully understand, something capable of reproducing, something capable, apparently, of evolving, and they assure us that it's all under control, Maz. It's all under control. A familiar story. Uh, all the dinosaurs are female, they said. Yeah. No way they can get off the island, mm -hmm. they said. But as the wise Jeff Goldblum told us, life finds a way. What do you think, Moz? Are these things a uh, ticking time bomb, just waiting to take over the planet? Is it panic time yet? Is it time to panic? Ooh, it yeah. feels like it every time I do an episode. I just feel like panicking. No, no one's driving the bus, and we are going to eventually <laughs> right. create something that's going to be awful. It's just a bunch it's of kids screwing around in the back doing things they're not supposed to be doing. No yeah. one's driving. It's no just driving. rolling out of control, man. And that's why we got frog cells, because they're still like in seventh grade lab, just like they're using <laughs> yeah. frogs all the time for embryo cell research. And, and, and just, I mean, with all we know of frogs, of course they can self-replicate. Like yeah. We've seen so many stories of frogs you know, all the men, all the, the males die and the females just keep, keep reproducing or some of them just turn into males or vice versa. All the females die. So some of the males just turn into females. Like it's going to take just one guy to lick the frog before he hits the button and zaps it. Then we got a Franken frog. Oh, oh, Very, man. yeah. That's well, let's move on because it, it's not all doom and gloom here. Actually, these things could end up being a huge revolution in a number of different scientific fields including medicine, environmental sciences, things like that. Let's hear one more bit from Engadget about the practical applications foreseen for these freaky little biobots. The UVM team hopes to further develop Xenobot technology into something a bit more functional, using them to potentially deliver drug molecules to specific parts of the human body, or having them gather and remove microplastics from waterways. See? So, could be extremely helpful, actually. Cool stuff, right? But uh, let's get back to our point, though. Let's get back to Jeff I Goldblum. I mean, clean, cleaning plastics out, plastic out of the water, that's, that's huge. If they can aim it towards that and it actually works, let's go. But uh, anyhow, back to the point. We have already managed to create tiny, self-replicating biobots. How hard could it be to make some self-replicating machines or bio-machines even if we can do that? Again, not there yet but we're definitely closing in on it step by step by step. See what I'm doing there, Moz? Bringing us along. Bringing us along down Leading this road us down from hate the to love, man. Primrose path. Right down that road from hate to love. Keep on moving. That's why it's called a tour, Monster Lore Tour. Right. But experts in the field are predicting that within the next 100 years, and some say as little as 50 years, we could have our own version of these von Neumann probes running reconnaissance through all the star systems on this side of the galaxy. 
and when one lands on a planet moon or you know even in the right orbit around a gas giant it gets to work making more of itself or whatever other machines we think might be useful in the situation and building it all with on-site materials it's quite brilliant no need to drag all that fuel supplies equipment across deep space just send the bots to build what you want and then follow along when the construction is complete you could program these things to build space stations already in orbit terraform planets to make them livable for our species the possibilities are endless but then again so is the ability of these things to propagate and therein lies the wub as philip k dick would say that was more elmer fudd actually it's the name of a philip k dick story oh, okay where was i but then again so is the the abilities of these things to propagate and therein lies the wub that's where i was if you program any sort of von neumann probe to always keep procreating once they invade a star system they would eventually given enough time use up all the local materials in that system to build more of themselves given long enough even just a single one of these self-replicating probes lands on an outer moon in our star system it will eventually leave this system an empty void it would consume all the asteroids comets planets maybe even the sun itself until it had nothing left to feed on what does this sort of procreative behavior remind you of, Maz? Von Neumann probes. Let's hear what Michio Kaku has to say about it. Now, these probes would be different from ordinary probes. They would be nanobots. They would have the ability to land on a hostile terrain and create a factory, just like a virus. That's what viruses do. They replicate. One virus can create maybe a thousand copies then a thousand thousand copies and then a million billion trillion and all of a sudden you have trillions of these things propagating through outer space you know what i like about what kaku actually did help me out he said replicate it's it sounds like <laughs> so he tried to keep the whole elmer fudd theme going he knows philip k dick no. but like a virus these things could infect an entire galaxy and given enough time, decimate everything, every sun, planet, piece of rock, wisp of gas, any particle of space dust would be absorbed by the biobots. Were you going for Borg? They would be all that remains, Maz. You will be assimilated. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going Resistance so, but, but is futile. But you more, will be assimilated. But it's more of a virus Borg. It's not a, it's more of the Cthulhu-scene Borg. It's the micro-Cthulhus you micro were talking Cthulhus, about. yeah. Yeah, but so now... This is only a possibility. If you program these things properly, they could be super useful and efficient and not overpower the universe with their voracious procreation. So just be wary of that, humans, as you move forward into the final frontier. This also tells us something about the potential of an alien species having achieved this level of technology and the ability to send out such probes. There are a few potentialities here. I got a little list. So one, no one has managed to make these things yet. Nobody has these things in their sky. No star systems are being eaten by little biobots. Two, someone has made these things, but they are not numerous enough in our part of space for us to have noticed them, and they're not set to, you know, consume, consume, consume. Three, 
crafts such as these are here, but they are too old to still be operational. It's like the buoy dead in space thing. Like Avi Loeb's theory on a muumuu. So the first choice could imply that we truly are alone in the universe or that our ego is justified and we really are the most advanced species the galaxy has to offer. I would find that quite depressing, no honestly. Yep. The second choice is both exciting and frightening. These things could be making their way toward us right now as we just spin through space, biding our time. This would be cool because it means there are other intelligent species out there, some even ahead of us, but it also means our clock is ticking. Mm -hmm. We need to figure it out. The third option is, in my mind, the most interesting. This implies that a species definitely more advanced than we are currently has, at some time in the far distant past, already set out to observe us but we were too young, too unevolved to bother making contact with them. Is our lack of contact with outside worlds just a matter of bad cosmic timing? I mean, maybe, right? They showed up so long ago, we weren't ready to do anything with it. But if this is the case, there could be all kinds of old alien tech just floating around out there for us to find, like what Avilo predicts a muamua was. I mean, maybe we already found one, right? You mean like beta, with a mua mua. beta tapes and, you know. Yeah, yeah. VCRs. Like a, a mua mua was, was a, a laser disc <laughs> model solar sail. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but this, this brings us back to an earlier question, though. Eight track. Was a mua mua a piece of ancient alien space junk in a sign that some long lost intelligence once peered into our system a long, long time ago? Or was it just the first of many to come? a scout that tripped the wire and is now alerting, it, alerting its home planet to our presence here. Are there more to come? Was it just an anomalous passerby? We're going to have to wait for an answer on that one, I guess. Unless we change the trajectory of our planet. So they can't find us. They can't find us. <laughs> yeah. Let's just change the trajectory of our solar system. It'll be fine. Because, yeah, we'll, we know yeah, how we to do that. Yeah, we should take the right? sun with us. We'll right. just throw all our nukes at the sun, see what happens. Yeah. yeah. I like it. But what if? I'm going to do a what if. What if one of these self-replicating von Neumann monsters from outer space ends up finding us and lands, say, at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean? Oh, <laughs> Where it sits for eight years before we even know it's there, there, much like the meteor Avi Loeb has been yeah. chasing there. Yep. Uh, and this time, not only, you know, in, in, in at some point, but we it, start finding these things. But if it down wouldn't there. have, like, started taking over and rebuilding if that's. Well, it's all a matter of time and scale and whatnot. No, so it could be really tiny. Right. Tiny little. Just so, so there's some dead whale at the bottom being totally attacked themselves. by these nanobots right now. What was that craft the TikTok was talking to? Was that China. something that got built by these nanobots on the bottom of the ocean and it was coming in to make sure it was working right? I thought TikTok was Chinese spyware. And there's all kinds of things. But uh but what if what if one day somebody finds one of did these? You mean TikTok? What did I say? <laughs> so you said TikTok. Of course I did. The because tic-tac. that's why I really was thinking of China. But anyway, Yikes. Sorry. the TikTok craft. Excuse <laughs> me, everybody. 
I thought I was just being dumb, and then I was like, no, I'm actually yeah. just being dumb, and you're being dumb. The internet is in my brain. <laughs> it's in my brain. Yeah, China's in your brain now. Oh, boy. They they may well be, <laughs> especially if they're behind the Havana Syndrome. And TikTok. I'm doing way too many callbacks right now. Although this is the end of the arc, so. Where was I? Oh, yeah, so this thing. Pacific Ocean. Lands in the Pacific Ocean and starts remaking itself. And one day we find one and we find another one and another one and another one to the point that that's all we're pulling up anymore. There's nothing else down there except these things. What would this mean? I mean, we'd be staring in the face of our doom, right? But I mean, he would, if they found that debris, they would have some indication that these things are self-replicating. I mean, Bobby Loeb has been... well. Yeah, and there's actually, you know, the, the the conjecture that he didn't even really find what he was looking for and that those weird things he found were from the nuclear tests and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's the ocean. It, it was down there for years. And they, they swept the area. They found some weird stuff, but it's hard to even say if it came from what they were actually specifically looking for. And if this thing's an automated craft, it could land and then run away mm-hmm. and go, you know, go to one of the volcanic vents if it needs that kind of fuel or you know it starts looking around for the specific materials it needs it's probably nowhere near where it landed or the outside's a shell and the inside are all these probes i mean we don't know what it could be anything right right exactly like it might have purposefully burst apart it's made to burst apart like the dandelion von newman pinata yeah kind of but instead of skimming the atmosphere and letting the seeds out it comes down and blows up and all the seeds just spread. Right. You know? Yeah. That's like the spores on that uh yeah. truck episode. Yeah. But now we're getting a little panspermia yeah. kind of tack here, but I'm doing those next season. Nice. But anywho, uh so getting back into it, as the numbers grew, if this thing procreates fast enough, we could never catch up to the numbers. We could never catch them all. And these things would devour our entire planet, us everything on earth including the earth itself just to keep making more of itself as michio kaku said earlier just like a virus that's what viruses do they replicate one virus can create maybe a thousand copies then a thousand thousand copies and then a million billion trillion is that the same one it, it's, a, it's a piece of that other one, yeah. Okay, because he did say replicate again, so I wonder if he's replicating <laughs> replicate or if it was a new one. But I don't know about you, Moss, but when Avi Loeb went out there looking for that thing, I was hoping they were going to find some kind of active alien probe down there. But, uh, you know, after, after this whole thing and what Michio Kaku's telling us, I'm, I'm kind of hoping the Scully Muggles are right on this one. Yeah, that would be safer. Yeah. Although if, if those weird types of elements are in the ocean because of all that nuclear testing that gives us a whole new set of problems but at least it's earthbound problems godzilla godzilla's coming dude like (laughs) that that's just a vision of the future at this point as far as i can tell but that spreading like a virus concept leads into a conversation about what i just mentioned uh a different approach to exploring and potentially colonizing the galaxy in panspermia uh, as I said, I am going to do a full-on deep dive into this later, but it touches on this so much. I did put a little bit in my notes here, so here's a little teaser for panspermia for you. So to introduce the concept and show the connection to what we're talking about, 
Let me read you this from Wikipedia. Panspermia is the hypothesis first proposed in the 5th century BC by the Greek philosopher Anaxagoras that life exists throughout the universe distributed by space dust, meteoroids, asteroids, comets, and planetoids as well as by spacecraft carrying unintended contamination by microorganisms. Did you just Anaxagoras me? Anaxagoras. <laughs> Sounds like a name of one of my D&D characters or something. But the essence of the theory is that life begins in space and is spread to different planets and places that are life-friendly through interplanetary, interstellar, and even intergalactic objects. We'll get way more into that in the full episodes. But uh, here's a free sample right now. Did you know that humans are planning to put a fertility bank on the moon, Moss? I didn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like saving everything. Yeah, here's, here's a headline from CBS News dated March 21st, 2021. Quote, Scientists want to send 335 million seed, sperm, and egg samples to the moon to create a lunar Noah's Ark. Are they trying to get the moon pregnant? <laughs> you, you heard it right, man. The article says, quote, Instead of two of every animal, the solar-powered moon arc would cryogenically store frozen seed, spore, sperm, and egg samples from some 6.7 million Earth species. And you want to know where this idea came from? Must? Crick, Watson and Crick. The University of Arizona. Okay. College of Engineering right here in Arizona. Nice. We're actually just up the road from there right now. That's exciting. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Unexpected. It's, it's uh, We rarely get accolades in this state. Well, yeah, it's pretty advanced for Florida West, you know? Yeah, we get but, citations. Uh, but the question is, is this it's the right kind? the beginning of humans becoming panspermists in their own right or is there something more sinister afoot stay tuned for the full episodes nice and those are going to be a while that's season two so that's your teaser i'm just teasing you all right enough teasing though let's get on to our next segment the one that's going to bring this whole thing home actually finally this is where we slide farther down the rabbit we hole. We don't want it to come back home. <laughs> oh, but don't we? V'ger came back. Yeah, that but that, that went changed. very badly. Went, that went very badly. Always, these are, you know, these little nanobot things have showed up in a lot of science fiction, and it never ends. It's always a battle to try to stop these things. Yeah, it never ends well. Never ends well. But uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, this is where we slide farther down the rabbit hole and get into the more conspiracy theory-based angles on alien probes. And we begin with the Black Knight Satellite Theory. They say the Black Knight Satellite has been in our sky watching us from above for over 13,000 years, Moz. So where better to start? People who are into it are going to know what I'm talking about, but a lot of people don't. So let's get into it. The legend of the Black Knight Satellite, also and originally known as the Dark Satellite, jumped into the mainstream in 1998. That is when NASA released photos from the latest Space Shuttle Endeavour mission, which showed a strange dark object flying in the vicinity of the shuttle and the ISS. Right. The ufology and conspiracy communities were quick to ask the question, is this the legendary dark satellite finally caught on camera? You're probably familiar with the picture. Yeah. I, it's one of those that 
everybody yeah. on uh, everybody online saw it at yeah. some point. But the dark satellite is my memory is anything they can't explain they're thinking this thing well there's there's a real story here there's there's definitely more to it than that this is just where this is where it jumped into the mainstream we're going to get into the actual history of it and everything as we go so when these pictures came out of this of this thing some were very quick to believe but these pictures were actually quickly debunked they just show a piece of equipment that was supposed to be attached to the exterior of the ISS that got away from the astronauts on the spacewalk. Uh, for a lot of people, these photos and the reactions to them were the first they had heard of this dark satellite legend, though. And when the pictures were debunked, it was maybe the last they ever heard of it as well. But the legend of the dark satellite began long before these photos were taken. Yes. Here we go, Moss. And there are many reasons to wonder of it still. The legend of the dark satellite is as old as man's advancement to the skies. As soon as we started listening and looking at the sky for more than just birdsong and weather, there have been strange reports of inexplicable things. The first inklings of the dark satellite specifically in modern times comes from none other than Nikola Tesla. In 1899, Nikola Tesla built a giant radio tower in Colorado Springs for use in his energy experiments. As an electrical engineer, he did not build the tower with the purpose of receiving signals, but soon after erecting this tower, it started receiving signals that Tesla could not explain. The signal seemed manufactured, repeating numbers at regular repeating intervals. It seemed purposeful, and when Tesla always the engineer, tracked the signals, he found that they were coming from somewhere not on this world, but from outer space. Tesla believed he had been first witness to an intelligent alien message from outer space. When asked about these messages, Tesla said, quote, I believe numbers are being used for communication because numbers are universal. Very rational man. Now this is Nikola Tesla we're talking about here. This is the Nikola Tesla Einstein was talking about when someone asked him what it was like to be the smartest man in the world. And Einstein replied, I don't know. You'd have to ask Nikola Tesla. Einstein considered Tesla the smartest man in the world. So when this guy starts telling the world that he is receiving repetitive radio signals from outer space, the world tends to believe him. This began the modern legend of the dark satellite. That's where it really started, 1899 with Nikola Tesla. And when, a few years later, Guglielmo Marconi, the father of modern radio, reported having intercepted these same strange signals from outer space, the legend was locked into the parazeitgeist. And it's been there ever since. Parazeitgeist. Is that a new word? Did Did I just make make that that? up? I just wrote that. I kind of love it. The parazeitgeist. The next chapter in the auditory search for this alien satellite came in 1927 when a Norwegian engineer by the name of Jorgen Hals discovered something very strange. While conducting some radio experiments, Jorgen Hals discovered some strange echoes on certain wavelengths. There are natural echoes one will experience when broadcasting radio waves. Signals will bounce off the atmosphere and reflect back to the source. These echoes come back one-seventh of a second after transmission. These echoes are consistent and reliable at one-seventh of a second, okay? What Halls discovered was that on some limited frequencies, 
there were echoes that would come back as much as 15 seconds after transmission. That is over a hundred times longer than the known atmospheric echoes. These findings were verified by Jorgen Halls in repeated experiments, and the findings were recreated by other scientists and engineers after he published his findings. Totally recreatable. That's huge. They could all find these strangely delayed echoes, which have been designated LDEs, or Long Delayed Echoes. But to this day, no one has come up with a scientific explanation for these LDEs. Any echo taking more than 2.7 seconds after transmission are considered LDEs. They still can't figure it out. There are a number of theories put forth by different scientists on what causes these LDEs, but none of these theories have shown any testable validity, at least as of today. The source is still completely a mystery. And this is the guy who discovered the first radio, so this is a long mystery. Yeah. This is more yeah. than 15 seconds. This is going, <laughs> let's see, going on 125 years. It's a mystery. This mystery. But in 1973 some 46 years after the original discovery of LDEs. Oh, wait, 1899 was the dark satellite. LD, they named them LDEs later. I'm counting, the, I'm counting what Nik, Nikola Tesla did as, as part of this. So I'm, that 46 years is, is too short in my mind. It should be like 74 years. But anywho, I'll start that again. In 1973, some 46 years after the original discovery of LDEs, a Scottish researcher, Duncan Lunan, decided to take a different approach to the LDE phenomenon. He gathered all the data he could get on LDEs, and at this point, there was a lot of it, and started analyzing it for patterns. In the end, he came out with what he claimed was an encoded message and a map. The map was a star map the pattern of which Lunin claimed matched the layout of the constellation Booties boots. in our sky. Oh, I can't say Booties? Well, I, th I think it's Boots. I'm pretty sure it's Booties. Well, I like Booties B -O better myself. B-O-O-T-E-S, Booties in our sky. But there was one catch. The layout didn't quite match the current image of Booties as seen from Earth. One of the stars was shifted out of place. <laughs> We couldn't even make it through the paragraph last. <laughs> no, I actually looked it up. It's pronounced booties. Okay. It's part of my favorite thing about that paragraph. That's awesome. But as I was saying, the layout didn't quite match the current image of booties as seen from Earth, but one of the stars was shifted out of place. However, Lunin ran the star map back through time and discovered that this discrepancy was adjusted for if you looked at how booties appeared in our sky 13,000 years ago. It was like Bovel and Hancock, message of the Sphinx. 13,000 years yeah. ago. Matches, matches how, how long uh, John Anthony West said the Sphinx was, right? Yeah. Oh, so maybe you're right. I thought little, was, you're right. He's the first one to say I thought it was Bovel and Hancock. Go, go Beckley Tepe. Well, John Anthony West was the oh, geologist. Oh, yeah, he was the... He was he the was, geologist that confirmed that's water erosion. No, it was Robert Schock. But, but was it you're, Schock? But you're right. West. You're right. West was the first one to say longer periods of times are lost to history. Yeah. Bovel, I don't know who's the first one who figured out the, I thought it was Bovel and Hancock who did the Orion match. 
But I don't know about this booty stuff. What I mean, I don't know <laughs> what's going on. Let's get back to the booties because I we think I would have heard this. I don't. But anyway, so it, it would that map would line up thirteen thousand years ago. Right. Same idea as the the message was directions to the specific star system and planet from which the signal originated. It was a map back to the source that they were sending us but it was 13,000 years old. Lunin concluded that not only was there an advanced alien satellite in orbit somewhere around Earth, but that it was put there over 13,000 years ago and has been watching us ever since. Unfortunately, Lunin's findings didn't hold up. Peer review found his approach lacking in actual scientific method and he later withdrew his findings, admitting that he had taken liberties with the data to achieve his conclusions. He took liberties with the booties? <laughs> he took liberty with the booties, dude, and it blew up in his face. <laughs> oh, boy. He also later recanted his recanting, though, and in the end, Lunin's theories didn't hold water. Yeah. So he, he, he flubbed something to make a name for himself, I think, and it blew up in his face. Skeptical scientists now propose that the signals discovered by Tesla and Marconi didn't come from an alien satellite, but from distant quasars. Right. Quasars are collapsed stars that give off signals sim similar to what Tesla and Marconi described in their findings, but they would not have known that as quasars hadn't been discovered yet in their time. It's a plausible theory, but still no answers on the LDEs, really. It's, it's a theory that doesn't really explain it all because it's like always there on certain frequencies and stuff it's it's just weird one interesting point here to me with an echo time of up to 15 seconds but usually less should we maybe be looking for the source of this phenomena out by the lagrange points how 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 a 15 follow me here a 15 second echo you're talking about 1.4 million miles to the echo point. Whereas the Lagrange points are only about a million miles from Earth. But most of the LEDs are less than 15 seconds, and it would make sense that if there is a probe purposefully echoing the signal, it would not it only want to analyze the signal first, but maybe alter the timing of retransmission to mask its location. Have they found any differences in the echo that's coming back? It's got to be an exact echo, obviously. I'm just asking because it seems like something it, delayed. It seems like it would be. Yeah. Yeah. But something could manufacture that as well. That's why I'm just, I'm just wondering. 15 seconds. But if they kept coming at different intervals, it makes it impossible for us to lock in the source location, right? Well, when you're just you're doing the jokes, someone doing it that farther later is just someone messing with you. Well, <laughs> it's like right you know what i mean you're in a cave it's like 15 yeah. seconds later it's like <laughs> they usually right. change the last one you know to make the joke like more apparent i don't mm. know if they've done that yet but to, to freak you out yeah. Yeah. yeah but uh if they keep coming at different intervals it makes it impossible for us to lock in the source location if the echoes are never shorter than a two million mile round trip this might be something to think about you know the james webb telescope is sitting out at a lagrange point can it do a little spin for us real quick? See if it has any company in the vicinity. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It would make a lot of sense to put a probe there. That's 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we did, but we're looking out instead of in. Right. You know, otherwise that'd be kind of brilliant. But anywho, in the end, the audio evidence for the dark satellite doesn't give us too much to go on. However, there is a whole other side to this legend, the visual side, and that side gets quite a bit more interesting. It all started on May 14th, 1954. That was the day that two U.S. newspapers printed a story about telescopes at the White Sands in New Mexico tracking what they believed to be two artificial satellites in orbit around the Earth. That's two artificial satellites, Moss. This might not sound like a big deal today when we, when we have thousands of these things up there flying around, but this was 1954. The first human-made craft wasn't launched into space until 1957 with the Sputnik missions. There wasn't supposed to be anything but rocks up there, and the government was supposedly tracking two artificial satellites, one at 400 miles and the other at 600 miles above the surface of the Earth. So three years before the very first human thing put in space, they're, they're tracking two artificial satellites in orbit. Gotcha. And not only that, but it seems these satellites were emitting signals Signals similar to those described by Tesla and Marconi in the 1920s when they discovered the mysterious signals from outer space. But the Pentagon was absolutely pissed about the leaking of this information, which makes it seem all the more legit. The leak came from a naval aviator by the name of Donald Kehoe. Kehoe leaked the tracking of these UOOs, unidentified orbital objects. There's a new one for your lexicon. And the tracking was confirmed by the then head of the White Sands installation, Lincoln La Paz. Kehoe became a big name in the ufology community following this. He is responsible for the formation of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, and is a renowned UFO researcher. He wrote a book called The Flying Saucers Are Real. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy, That was originally published in December 1950, so he was into the UFO scene even before the discovery of these mystery satellites. Back to Philip K. Dick. Yeah, like the Foo Fighters and stuff, you know what I mean? Throughout history, it seems UFO sightings grow much more common during a war, and the world wars were no exception. In his time as a naval aviator, Donald Kehoe collected numerous stories of military sightings of unknown craft. Here he is speaking at a press conference for the release of his book. With all due respect to the Air Force, I believe that some of them will prove to be of interplanetary origin. During a three-year investigation, I found that many pilots have described objects of substance and high speed. One case, pilots reported their plane was buffeted by an object which passed them at 500 miles an hour. Obviously, this was a solid object, and I believe it was from outer space. What all he's talking about there is a whole other episode arc for us, actually, but it shows you how deep in this he was from the start. So it was no wonder that Kehoe was the leak for the information coming out of White Sands, especially since it seems Lincoln La Paz was a compatriot, as he was willing to verify the veracity of the story. So he he even had the guy in charge backing him up, who wasn't supposed to do that, I'm sure, at the time. (laughs) So the news of these mysterious satellites excited the astronomy community, and suddenly people all over the world started looking for these mysterious objects, and they found them. 
not only scientists and amateur astronomers, but governments across the world started watching for these things, and confirmed reports rolled in from around the globe on a regular basis. This was the Cold War. The space race was heating up. All the competing governments, particularly the U.S. and USSR, were panicked by these sightings. See, I told you it was time to panic, Moss. Yeah. All of them simultaneously believing that the other guy had gotten ahead of them and had some secret spy satellites already in orbit. Truth is, though, no one knew what the hell these things were or where they came from. No one knows where these things came from. It is odd that they're just a couple of years before Sputnik. Like they were here to see what we were doing, right? Yeah. It always seems that way. But the mystery abounded for a few years. Then humans finally got in the space game with the USSR launching Sputnik on October 4th, 1957, and Sputnik 2 on November 3rd, 1957. So basically a month apart. Sputnik 1 was unoccupied. Sputnik 2 was Laika. carried the first Earth creature, to our knowledge, to ever achieve orbit. That was Laika, who got the Mad Cujo's Award. The and the, the first animal to receive a Mad Cujo's Award in this podcast. That is very true. Yeah. See, she's Many still setting records, man, still. all these years later. Yep. God bless her. Ben Horizon is going to wake up now. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be afraid to go outside after this recording. There's going to be a This is the last time guy. I go in orbit alone. <laughs> You better come with me. Oh, man, I haven't been that high in a while. All right, but anywho, shortly after the launch of Sputnik 2, the Venezuelan government was tracking the Sputnik 2 with their telescopes when they discovered something disturbing. Another satellite in the vicinity of Sputnik 2 that wasn't supposed to be there. Sputnik 3. Like it was coming in to check it out. Not only did this object appear to be an artificial satellite, but it was moving in an opposite direction to the Sputnik 2. Retrograde. Correct. The Sputnik 2 was traveling in what we call a prograde orbit. I was close. Well, hold on. Was traveling what we call a prograde orbit. That means it was spinning with the spin of the Earth. It was spinning in the same direction as the Earth. Retrograde. Which was the only way humans knew how to get a satellite into orbit at that time. It was the only way we knew how to do it. This other satellite was moving in retrograde orbit, Moz. Very Reverse good. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Opposite the spin of the Earth. Not only was this weird, but we literally didn't even think it was possible yeah. at the time. With all our advancements in space travel, humans now have the capacity to put something into retrograde orbit, but it was decades after the but Sputnik 2. But they showed tour. up just like, you know, in the 50s, right? This is the 50s. And they see this. This is the 50s. So we're seeing we're racing with muscle cars. So they're like, oh, they're going to put up these things. Look what ours can do. And like, vroom, 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 vroom. you know, they're just like showing off. Maybe. That's maybe. all I'm thinking this is. I think they're just checking us out, watching our progress is what so much of it seems like sometimes. Yeah, but that, that's like way off. off. That's, that's for another time. That's yeah. a different conversation. That's Lagrange point way off, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, how, 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 how? <laughs> so we now know how to do retrograde orbit, but it was decades after Sputnik 2 that we actually achieved that sort of technology. So how do we explain this mystery satellite? Sightings of this mysterious object were reported by numerous sources from all over the globe for the next few years. Finally, in 1960, 
the U.S. DOD officially acknowledged the existence of this UOO that everyone already knew was there. So, you know, six years after everyone knew about it, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. It's funny how the government thinks nothing is true until they say it is, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, you can believe it now. We say it's okay to believe it now. Mm-hmm. It's like, we already knew that, dude. Mm-hmm. Way ahead of you. <laughs> but anywho, on February 10th, 1960, the New York Times published a story from the DOD that verified the existence of this satellite. Here is an excerpt from that article that Moz is going to read us. An unidentified silent satellite has been discovered circling the Earth in a near-polar orbit by U.S. tracking stations. The identity and origin of the mysterious satellite, which has been dubbed the Dark Satellite, are not known despite two weeks of tracking. Thank you, 1950s reporter, man. I I could do film strip. You want me to do like... Ooh, film strip. Your testicles and you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Johnny Dangerously. Anywho, this tells us two things. One, that the government is willing to admit to the reality of this satellite, which in itself is a thing. Two, and this is a point that seems to get overlooked because I didn't come across it in any of my research, that there are actually two different satellites up there that we can't explain. Why do I say this? Because the satellite that was witnessed by so many people in the late 1950s was not in near-polar orbit, but in a standard retrograde orbit. This speaks to the existence of two separate satellites, which was the original report to begin with, right? And what do they have in common? They were both in a type of orbit that humans hadn't figured out how to achieve yet. Also, something to note here, near-polar orbit, which indicates an orbit going north-south over the poles, or near the poles, is preferred over east-west prograde or retrograde orbits, specifically for spy satellites. They go over more land? They do. This is because with the east-west rotation of the Earth, a lot of ocean, in the north-south orbit of the satellite, the satellite eventually is able to see the entire surface of the planet in the course of its orbit because the world's spinning around sideways and this thing's going around it that way. Oh, I get you. You know, it's spinning this yeah. way, and it's looping around over the poles north-south right. as the Earth spins. Mm-hmm. So the Earth is literally spinning around underneath it. So eventually it'll take some loops. But it's getting more data. But eventually it will more. see every piece of the Earth that way. Whereas if you're going east-west, you're going to stay over that same latitude basically the whole time. Wow. Yeah. Sneaky. Yeah. Those good muscle cars are cool they have, though. They showed us. <laughs> The jerks, sharks and the jets, you know. Oh, boy. So not only was there a confirmed satellite of unknown origin orbiting Earth, but it was in position to literally see everything that was going on down here. It isn't in position. They shouldn't be doing that. And as far as we know, it is still watching us, Moz. It's still there. A dark there. satellite. It's yeah. still there. A dark night always triumphs. Yeah. But there were a couple of serious attempts to catalog this near-polar orbiting satellite. The first was commissioned by the U.S. Navy, who assigned the long-time and still-current military contractor Northrop Grumman with the task of photographing and defining the nature of this mystery satellite. They're literally hunting it down at this point. By all accounts, the mission was a great success. Photos of the satellite were obtained. Numerous reports were written on the findings. And all of this was presented to the U.S. Navy. 
why is it always the Navy in my episodes, dude? The Navy immediately sealed these photos and documents, and as far as we know, no one has ever seen them since. Nice. Yeah, typical Navy. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. On and, our side. Oh, we don't know how we learned how to build a warp drive. <laughs> yeah, those guys. Who, <laughs> even though they patented it already. That's the way they are. Oh, boy. So the other attempt to catalog it came in May 1961 when the Smithsonian Institute had their own sighting of the dark satellite. They gave out their data and put out a general call to humanity to help them get this thing figured out. In response to this call, a French astronomer, Jacques Vallée, yeah, yeah, a name. who was funded by the French government, was also able to locate photograph and catalog the dark satellite Mm -hmm. thing has been cataloged twice like with the northrop grumman mission as soon as valley and his team turned over their collected findings on the dark satellite because remember he was funded by the government Mm -hmm. all the records were immediately sealed and the photographs reportedly destroyed unlike with the grumman mission however Some of the information gathered by Valley and his team got out to the public. They determined that the satellite was indeed in near-polar orbit, and also that the object was quite large. It was described as being the size of a semi-truck and weighing in at an astounding 15 tons. That's bigger than a needle. This is ridiculous. This is a ridiculously sized object. For us to have launched. For anyone to launch into orbit. Even today, like 15 tons. Unless it wasn't launched by us. 15 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. But it just doesn't seem to make sense. Unless, of course, it wasn't launched there, but built on location with locally sourced materials by an autonomous self-replicating Von Neumann-style nanobot swarm. Right, Moz? There you go. To bring it back. I can explain anything. Yeah. I am the para-king. I can explain anything. (laughs) The para-shice-geist, like I said. Anywho, that's not true. But, uh, I mean, do you see my point there, though? Like, you could build something in orbit that That big. That big, you can't. You don't have to worry about how much it weighs if you're building it on site, right? Yeah. Maybe uh, we used to have another moon, another little moon. A little moon moss? <laughs> and, or maybe the moon used to be bigger. Maybe yeah. that's why there's so <laughs> many holes in the moon. So it's not made of cheese at all. The craters. Oh, right. Is where yeah. they're digging. Yeah. An old mining operation. Sorry, I'm going off the rails. I'm only halfway through my episode. <laughs> okay. Jacques Vallée, much like Donald Kehoe, was moved by his personal experiences with the unknown and later became a renowned ufologist and researcher. And more. So he was like the French Kehoe. Yeah as well as continuing to be successful in the more traditional sciences with his astrology and astronomy, excuse me. Uh, he, he has some books out there for you if you want to check them out as well. Oh, yeah. So, He's, so yeah, we'll Don, be talking Donald, about him in other episodes for sure. Totally. Those books will probably come up again in the future. There is also an apparent eyewitness, an eyewitness to the existence of the dark satellite, or one of them anyway, if there's two. A few years after the DOD recognized the reality of an inexplicable satellite in an inexplicable orbit around the Earth, America sent super astronaut Gordon Cooper into space. Flash. Oh. 
Cooper was one of six men sent to space during the Mercury missions, the first six Americans ever to go to space. It was upon the launch of Mercury 9, with Gordon Cooper on board the solo craft, that we had what may be the first ever eyewitnessing of one of these alien probes. As Mercury 9 achieved orbit, a prograde orbit, as that is the only kind we could pull off at the time, he spied a strange object through the small window of his space capsule. It glowed with a strange green light, definitely not reflected sunlight, but something that appeared artificial. Cooper reported this sighting to ground control, and they confirmed the craft on their radar. Not only was the sighting radar confirmed, but the scientists at ground control were very puzzled over the fact that this strangely glowing object was moving in a retrograde orbit. This still wasn't a thing, as far as we knew. Word of the sighting got out, but by the time Gordon Cooper was back on the ground, the press was under strict orders not to mention the sighting during Mr. Cooper's press conference. Because they had a cooler muscle car than us. Cooler muscle cars, man. Flashy green, too. And the official report that later came from ground control was that Mr. Cooper had hallucinated the sighting mm-hmm. due to a CO2 leak in his capsule. Ground control to major time. If that doesn't sound like a CIA excuse for something, I don't know what does. Yeah. It's always a CO2 leak. That is to say... Ground control stated... I can explain the third podcast we did. <laughs> <laughs> a CO2 leak? <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking. So I figured that out, yeah. That is to say, ground control stated that the craft they confirmed on radar and observed to be moving in a retrograde orbit was just the p- capsule pilot's hallucination. Yeah, I'm not buying it. What do you it. think of that, Moss? I'm not buying it. They saw they it. They saw something moving in a way that would match... The retrograde north north to south like pole. They saw it. Yeah. They yeah. have data on it. Yeah. And then they said, oh, he just hallucinated that. Hmm. What? Yeah. Ixnay uh, on the etro raid gay, you know, like oh that. They just. Goodness. Why does NASA just start speaking pig Latin? <laughs> it would do just as well. So within 10 years of the first reports, of two satellites of unknown origin orbiting the Earth in inexplicable ways. There were numerous sightings by numerous people from numerous places around the world. All had a CO2 leak in their house. Yeah, I guess so. We're all just a bunch of hallucinators. We had government verification, the verification of renowned scientists, verification by amateur astronomers from around the globe, and in the end, even an actual eyewitness that saw this thing in a wrong-way orbit, giving him the celestial flyby on his first space flight. Mm -hmm. Flipping into a green, flashy bird. What I mean, what more do we need to know it's real, Boz? According to the original reports, there were two of these satellites. One has been found in retrograde orbit, verified and another in near-polar orbit, also verified. We now have the capacity, thanks to all the advances in spaceflight technology, to go up to to these retrograde and near-polar orbits and get a real good look at these things, maybe even reel them in and get our hands on them directly. Why do you think we haven't done that yet, Moz? Or have we? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, my, 
my head tilted so yeah. far I almost fell over. Yeah, you tilted the axis. Money. You almost went into a retrograde orbit. Or have we? <laughs> but does, I mean, like, is this where the saying Mercury in retrograde comes from in astrology? <laughs> it's, it might have something to do with it in para, in para astronomy. Yeah. This is definitely putting our Mercury in retrograde right here, no doubt. (laughs) Our Mercury mission is in retrograde. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, seriously, Moss, can we panic yet? Well, this is a long, but I know, but this is physically verified visual. Right, but this is a Mercury mission. No one's come back to, you know, I mean. Well, it's like they've just been here since the beginning. Yeah. And they just occasionally send another probe by. The Dark Knight satellite. They're just keeping an eye on us or something. It's I, really weird. It makes me feel strangely comfort. It's a strangely comforting thought, seeing how things are going. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it's okay. It's going to be it, fine. I guess if that's <laughs> the case, though. Okay, so here's, here's how I'm going to squash my panic. If that is the case, if they've really been watching us for 13,000 or even who knows how many more years... Then, I mean, if they had bad intentions for us, wouldn't they have done something already? Well, the Mahabharata, if you had the ancient alien stuff, if there was a nuclear war. Oh, uh, once them. we uh, cross our uh, bounds. Well, I'm so just saying, speak, yeah, once we get to that again. level, but that was supposedly a fight between them with the, you know, that's the ancient alien oh, theory. Oh, okay. So there, is, there was a battle potentially going on, the nukes going off. But you're right, we, we reached some kind of level. But. It should have happened when we set off the first nukes. That should have been the hey. You would think, right? That's what they should have stepped or yeah. would have stepped in if they were ready to be like, okay, kids. Maybe Star Trek's right, and it's only once we achieve the ability to actually travel the stars personally that they give a kid, you know, even care about what we're doing. Yeah, because you can't. Yeah, as soon as as soon as we can bring a nuke to their house. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That, yeah. No, but that's practical, really, right? Yeah. Like, if we're doing crazy shit, but we can't get yeah. off our own planet with it, then what do they care? Yeah. But once we have the capacity to be yeah. in the next star system in a matter of minutes or hours or whatever, then uh, all of a sudden we become an issue for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad point. It's very Star Trek, but it's yeah. not a bad point. Star Trek was right. Gene Roddenberry, man. Yeah. Him and Douglas Adams. Nims, not in my back star. <laughs> Is that like the secret of Nims? Yeah, the secret of <laughs> Nims. Yeah, still love that movie. Anywho, so we are we are finally closing in on the end of this. But before we get into the closing segments of our double double part probe thing here, coming into the home stretch, I just wanted to note something. Did you know, Maz, that Earth has a second moon? No. Yeah, it's actually called a quasi moon by scientists but it is in orbit around the earth oh okay albeit a weird one because it's actually uh being controlled by the sun but it's circling around the earth it is technically designated 2016 ho3 but has the name 469219 kamo oalewa was it named in Hawaii because of Hawaiian They name all these things it's a muamua too they use a lot of Hawaiian names on these things they have a really cool you know yeah. You know, everything on Mars observatory is, there. Everything on Mars is getting like First Nation kind of names, yeah. which is cool too. Uh, tribal names and whatnot. But this thing, 2016 HO3, Kamo Oalewa, tracks a corkscrewy kind of orbit around the Earth and is anywhere from 9 to 24 million miles away at any given point. 
So the, the alien's trying to open Earth so it'll breathe a little bit before well, they drink it? Give them a little observation <laughs> point. As far as we can tell, it is made out of typical Oort cloud material. But again, what if it was built on site? This could be a handy hiding place for an alien base, close enough for their craft to get back and is forth easily. Is this you or is this Ave Loeb? Is this anyone? is all me, baby. Okay. I, I, thought, we did, I thought we me. corkscrewed. As soon as I heard the corkscrew, I'm thinking, uh-huh. Jeremy. <laughs> yep. Yep. I am going down the corkscrew quite quickly. <laughs> but if here, this has boss. been here for a long time, we would know if there's something odd about it by now. When we, we just discovered the moon. We just discovered it 2016 HO3. That means we okay. discovered it in 2016. All right. We didn't even know it was there until seven years ago. Okay. Eight years ago, maybe by the time this comes this, out, right? This makes <laughs> your crazy theory all that more plausible, potentially. Right. But it's, uh, you know, this thing be close enough for their craft to get back and forth easily with field propulsion, but far enough away that we didn't really know it was there because we just discovered it in 2016. The following is an article from earthsky.org published October 17th, 2016, titled, Is Asteroid 2016 HO3 a Second Moon? I'm going to have you read this one, Moss. Alrighty. Here's a word about Asteroid 2016 HO3, first spotted earlier this year, which astronomers say is a constant companion of Earth. That doesn't mean it's a second moon. It doesn't orbit Earth. It orbits the sun but it orbits, keeps its companion to Earth, and it will remain so for centuries to come. What's more, as it orbits the Sun, the asteroid appears to circle around the Earth as well. That's why the astronomers at NASA's Center for Near-Earth Objects, NEO, studies at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, wrote about the object. It is too distant to be considered a true satellite of our planet, but is the best and most stable example to date of a near-Earth companion or quasi-satellite. Paul Chodas, manager of the Center for NEO Studies, said, Since 2016, HO3 loops around our planet, but never ventures very far away as we both go around the Sun. We refer to it as the quasi-satellite of Earth. This does sound like a... Dang, dude. Mm-hmm. One... Other asteroid, 2003 YN107, followed a similar orbital pattern for a while over 10 years ago, but has since departed our vicinity. This new asteroid is much more locked onto us. Our calculations indicate 2016 HO3 has been a stable quasi-satellite of Earth for almost a century, and it will continue to follow this pattern as Earth's companion for centuries to come, till we blow it up. Yeah, exactly. But what do you think? Could this be a cosmic stalker of planet Earth? Or you, 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 yeah, what? <laughs> this isn't a theory. This is a theory. I mean, yeah. It's, it's a thing. It's, it's there. A thing. But like, how much does it tie into all that we've been talking about? You it's know? just, wow. Got to find some different angles. See, we got to bring new stuff to the table yeah. here on Monster Lore Tormont. Yeah. And uh, we do. But, but here's the thing. We might actually just come to find out. But what you, this thing actually is. Here is an article from moneycontrol.com published April 24th, 2023 that I'm also going to have you read, Moz, and then we can talk more. China plans to send probe to near-Earth asteroid around 2025, so they're beating us to this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got a cooler, flashy muscle <laughs> Whoever car. gets there first, man. China plans, so maybe they, maybe we shouldn't be telling them this now, because now they're going to be looking for things. See what you're doing? You're, this is a... It could be a trap, this too, is, though. 
Oh, okay. You well, never know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Then they spring it. Good idea. I'm, I'm all for. I, You're I, always ahead of them by one step. I really wish humanity could all just be on the same team. You know, so whoever figures yeah. it out first, let's go, man. Go, go find out what it is. I don't care who it is. Just go figure it out. Yeah, Star Trek is a lie. So, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> It sounded good when we did the first ISS. That, that's the thing is like, we are so like-minded in so many ways, but when it comes down to stuff like that, I'm total Star Trek and you're total Battlestar. Yeah. We're going to be in a ship. <laughs> you think we're just, we're just screwed no matter what we do. And just, I, I think there is hope for a utopian future. You think we're just screwed no matter what we do. <laughs> yeah. Dystopia or dystopia. It's some kind of stopia yeah, coming yeah. up. But China plans to launch an uncrewed probe around 2025 to collect samples from a near-Earth asteroid and explore a comet, the official Xinhua news agency reported on Monday, citing a senior space expert. The chief goal of the Tianwen-2 mission is to send a probe to the asteroid 2016 HO3 to retrieve samples, said Zhang Rongqiao, chief designer of China's planetary exploration program and of the Tianwen to mission. If successful, it would be China's first samples collected from interplanetary space, Zhang said, adding that a spacecraft will be sent to fly around and then land on the asteroid to collect the samples. After completing the task, the spacecraft is expected to continue its journey to explore a comet in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, Zhang said. I'm looking forward to that. It's a lot like uh the samples that they brought back from the Bennu recently, that mm -hmm. NASA brought back that they're examining now. We're going to talk more about that in the side trail too, I think, if I remember my side trail right. But uh, This so, thing's suspicious. It is though, right? And no one's talking about it except Monster Lore Tour but and the Chinese. We're going to make first contact in 2025 maybe? Yeah. How do you think it will go yeah. with the West if China's leading the way and this turns into first contact sort of stuff? Wow. The political implications are staggering, honestly. Yeah, but uh, that's not our place to get into. We're just mm -hmm. ordinary paranormalists here at the Monster Tour. Right. We just so, run uh, a clean program here. We, we seem to have reached the conclusion of this alien probe saga. I Dang! Or, or, or have we? Or or have, have we? we? Either way, it is finally time for the concluding segments of this deep dive. So let's begin with our Alhul Guano Theory of the Week. Oh no, here it comes! Quick, to the batshit signal! Alright, so we finally reached the end of this four-part deep dive. But just when you thought it was safe to jump back in the water, Maz, I bring you a landmark Alhul Guano Theory of the Week. You already had a landmark theory with the satellite. Do I call all these landmarks? They cause they kind of are. You get very excited, yeah. I do. I like the Ahuguanos. Yeah. But why is this a landmark, you ask? Why will this Ahuguano theory go down in the annals of MLT history? Well, I'm going to tell you, good listener. I'm going to tell you too, Maz. Mm -hmm. This Ahuguano theory is so huge, so deep, and so mysterious. Not only is it the inspiration for the subtitle of this episode, but it is going to get its own full episode. Its own full episode, Maz the hell are you doing Moz really wants to say well i'll tell you this week's ahul guano theory is the hollow moon theory it was the ultimate ahul conclusion of this whole probe thing as far as i could tell it's the mother satellite but it goes so big and it gets so deep and there was so much to it it's the white knight it's gonna need its own episode 
we may just end up swallowing ourselves and disappearing into sweet oblivion after this one. But uh, <laughs> it is scheduled. More episodes to do. The Hollow Moon episode is currently scheduled for March 12th release. I'm booked for at least two weeks. So it'll be down the road a little bit, but that's where this road will actually, this uh, arc will actually conclude. No, it concludes on the moon with all those different space seeds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Noah's Ark Moon. Yep. Oh, the moon arc. Yep. Ooh. Can do a moon arc arc. But I'm not going to leave everybody hanging without an actual Ahul Guano theory. I really didn't want to leave it off just with that, even though I have Teaser. to do that as its own episode, and mm-hmm. it really was the, the proper one. Thankfully, just this morning, something occurred to me. I, I came up with a new theory that I think fits for this week's Ahul Guano theory. Dang. So you ready for this, Moz? We're going to go back to the Amuamua thing for a minute. This actually ties in with the dark satellite, too, now that I think about it. I'm going to tie that in, too. I literally just wrote this, like, right before we started recording. Were you eating your sandwich out of my... What if... you were here. Yeah, exactly. Well, I ate my sandwich on your patio. Yeah. I I wrote this. Okay. I'm going to have to rewrite it a little bit in my head, because I just realized it applies to the dark satellite, as well as a muamua. What if we built them? Or maybe I should say, what if the people who built the pyramids or the Sphinx or Gobekli Tepe or some such Nibiru. past society built a muamua in the dark satellite? What if they had the technology, in the case of a muamua, to put a craft into space, something like what we talked about with Breakthrough Starshot, but instead of using it to, tra- to traverse interstellar space to other planets, they used it more like how we use the JWST to better observe the cosmos. We know they were fabulous astronomers back then. We know they were. Maybe they had satellites. What if it's remnants of the Mahabharata, you know, the, the war that went Ooh, on, and yeah. there are these two things that are still out there? There you go. But could they have launched a solar sail-type craft to purposefully leave our system, come to rest at LSR outside of our system, and send back whatever data it was they were looking to collect. And maybe it was purposefully aligned to get caught in the sun's gravity when it did swing back around toward Earth. And if that civilization was still around, I imagine they would have recollected their alien, their ancient craft, put it in a museum somewhere. Yeah. And with the dark satellite, this is going to come straight out of my brain right now. <laughs> the Peary Reese map. Yeah. There is a map that exists that shows Antarctica without ice on it, and it's very accurate. 1500s. What if the dark satellite was the original kind of GPS thing and they used it to draw that map? Dang. But how did they, how did the earthlings get a, oh, because you're saying it is that civilization that put those things up. That civilization that put those things up there drew the Peary Reese map. Wow. Because they had the satellite going, the the near pole orbit going north-south around Mm -hmm. it as it spun east-west, and they were able to see the entirety of the planet and actually map the whole thing out. Yeah. That would explain the Peary Reese map, right? Yeah. What if we built these, what if humans, a past ancient society, civilization, advanced humans, built these things, and now we're finding their junk? That's why you said Anthony West earlier, because he's the one who really talks about missing pyramids. I mean, missing periods with pyramids. Yeah, (laughs) like we have forgotten so much history. But he's the one who pushes it back instead of just like, 
hey, maybe what's to say it's not thirty or forty thousand years ago, and 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 that you know again these lost legacies are even he pushes it back even further than Hancock to some degree. Yeah, and that would explain if there were these, you know, they these few remnants came down. There's few things still floating out there, well, but it wouldn't explain a muamua because wasn't that we came in crashed into it? Well, no, it was it was outside of our our sun system, our solar system sitting at LSR. It was yeah. kind of just floating outside our system. Right. That that could I mean if we put a JWST that far out, mm -hmm. we would get a whole new look at things. Right. You know what I mean? That, so it that could, could have be been something said a long time ago waiting for something to come across it or it could have been something we put up there. Yeah. Or an earlier Like that race. whole thing with us freaking out, oh my God, was it an alien probe and they know we're here now? Mm. What if it was just one of those past civilizations? Because yeah. if you listen to Plato and what the Egyptian Magi told him, we're like the sixth time this has happened. Yeah. The sixth time. This has happened five times before. What if one of those other five renditions of us, of c civilization and society, yeah. actually built those things and put them out there and now 20,000 years later or whatever, yeah. we're finding their junk. Yeah. And matches Greeks, is matches that, the Hopi. Is that a holy enough matches. for you, Moss? Is it's that a enough for you? I think it's I think it's good. I don't know if it's a holy. All right. Well, let's uh, slap ourselves back into reality here with a little Sir Richard Scully Muggle Skeptics Review. I uh, got to Dawkins this shit now, don't you? You're, you're, you're full of crap. And that's the nicest thing that I can say. <laughs> We're having so much fun. <laughs> uh, and here comes the bummer. Okay, and what would the skeptics say about all these anomalous things flying around all the time? Well, that one is easy. They're rocks. They would do everything they can to try and prove a muamua and all these other potential probes are completely explicable. In the case of a muamua, to this day... I am seeing newly written articles about how it was nothing to see, just a typical comet, even though there is no reason to believe that based on the data, and many reasons to not believe it. And with things like the Bet Sphere and the UAP videos. They'd also say it's not repeatable. Yeah. They say, oh, we only have one. Yeah. As with things like the Bet Sphere and the UAP videos that have been getting released. They just deny it outright due to the fact that they've never held one in their hands or been smacked upside the head by one. If they did hold one, it would be the one that was faked by the government. <laughs> right. They'll say it's a thing once they once the real one's stolen and it yeah. gets replaced with a toy. Yeah. Like, well, come on. These guys really make me angry, Moss. I understand the whole, you know, if I haven't experienced it, it isn't real mentality, but only to a point. Mm -hmm. the, the evidence is building up into such a pile that it's hard to keep it undercover anymore. Eventually you have to acknowledge something that is staring you in the face, you know? So many people cataloged those two satellites up there that were there before we had satellites. Yeah, 54. Governments and amateur astronomers and, and private institutions, they, they were all tracking it. Yeah. They saw it. They know it's there. But no, it's not there. And Cooper on the Mercury mission ah. saw it. In, in in person. I'm getting worked up as my face red. I'm going off the rails here. On a crazy train. Damn you, Scully Muggles. Damn you. I'm supposed to reel it in after the uh, whole guano. I can't even make their argument for him because it just yeah. makes me mad. All right. Sorry. Well, I can. Let me, let me know. Oh, go ahead. You ready? Yeah. No. 
Well done. Yeah. Well done, Moz. Thank you. Uh, so let's jump into our Scully Mulder believability scale. They feel your methods, your theories are spooky. Do you think I'm spooky? Wait, why am I Scully? So we already went through our whole Oumuamua thing. We did that in the past ones. We talked about the Bet Sphere and everything. So we covered that. So let's, uh, the one new thing I do want us to cover right here is the dark satellite. Do you believe that the dark satellite is an alien probe that's been watching us for over 13,000 years, Moz? Where do you stand one to 10 on that? Back to what I knew of it, there was, they were, everything was the dark satellite because it just, whenever they didn't see anything, but the way you described it today, there's so many, the 54 event, the Mercury event, uh, the, you know, this, before we could do something like that. And then to have the Mercury mission guy say it's green, it looks, you know, doesn't seem like it's not even a natural thing. You know, a lot of this was new new to me, and I, I know it's, you know, some of it, I, it's because, like, it was debunked with the, the booties guy was debunked, even though if it hadn't been, that would have tied right into all that Bauble Hancock Imagine stuff. if that was real. That right. would have been awesome. But some of the stuff that was even, pro- like, I, I just don't remember the, the, the 54 flap as much as I guess I should with stuff, but I'd say something was going in a retrograde orbit that, sounds like a spy satellite to me i'd say seven seven that's solid from you yeah we're gonna get into that uh 54 ufo flap over dc in the side trail that's a big part of the side trail actually nice or like a chunk of it well that one i know yeah that's Um, the pacific north yeah the first the first flat ufo flap you know i'm i'm kind of with you i was gonna go like a seven two but i might drop that my new theory actually just struck home with me. I almost feel like it was ancient humans that put those things up there now. It was still there, though, either way. Yeah. It, it, it's compelling to me because so many people saw it, something that shouldn't have been moving in that direction. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you didn't say how many people, but you said a lot of people also It's a lot, because there, there were governments, there were, you know... Something was tracking um, Observatories and, and amateur astronomers and different militaries, and, you know, there were all... The Smithsonian put out a call to people to do it, and they found it. Like, all these... Like, hundreds of people recorded this thing flying around the, the believability stuff tough though because did something capture in an orbit and weird and was there or well, was it alien technology and those are those are two different to me right something was there right that's why i'm saying seven it's but, a 10 that something was there because it was yeah the, the question though is is, is, is it, it alien, alien probe? yeah and it's a, almost a different question i'm, I'm still gonna stay seven but. i'm actually gonna drop it to a five i'm gonna go yeah. total 50 50 because I, I believe just as much that ancient it's an ancient earth built thing as that it would be an alien that still built qualifies thing. an alien civilization on our planet. I mean, it's still an oh, I guess, alien to us. I guess that's true. If okay, it's I'm something going, that I'm was technologically <laughs> technologically thrust there by something we don't know about in our civilization, I think is the question. So would uh, you can ooh, there's a philosophical question for you. Would you consider a past earthbound civilization of humans to be alien because we are separated by so much time and knowledge and technology to styles and things like that i guess you would consider that alien so if you consider that alien then i'm going 10 new boy somebody somebody put that put that stuff up there somebody put that stuff up there i it seems like it it seems like it 
All right. So in the final question for the believability scale, just straight up, are we being watched by aliens right now? Wow. That's the way to get to the heart of this. With everything you said, I'm still in Sevenville. I feel like that's the same with the, the, the Dark Knight or the satellite and the same with the Muamua, which was very compelling. I think there's a very good chance something is amiss, especially with everything else that's going on with Avi Loeb finding debris from other places and all the UAP stuff that's come out and all the congressional stuff you talked about. If you just put lump it all together, something has seems to be monitoring us, and I, I would say that that is more likely than less likely at this point. He's getting sevens out of Mars on my spacey stuff. That's pretty good. I'm going to go eight just because yeah. I need to believe this more than you because it was my episode. But, yes, yeah. I definitely believe it more than not. I'm not. Yeah. You, not ate, you ate my seven. It's hard to go 100% on any of this because you don't really know what these things are, what they're really here for, who really sent them. But it seems like someone's watching us. Yeah. It seems like someone's watching us. Yeah. What do you guys think? Uh, find us on Facebook, Monster Lore Tour Podcast Facebook page, or send us an email at monsterlore at gmail.com. We are going to finish this thing off with this week's Wolfman Pucks Cryptid Culinary Corner. Your entree, sir. <laughs> oh, Wahila ate my homework. Did I, I use that one already? I have a good evil thinker one for you today, Moz. All right. Today's basket ingredient is a bucket full of Von Neumann Xenobots. Can you bask an ingredient like that last minute? I mean, I thought like if, if we're doing like the, an episode on like the Loch Ness Monster, we're eating the Loch Ness Monster. Right. You, you did this in another episode too. You just no, brought a basket ingredient. The, these are both from here, Von Neumann Xenobots. All right. Well, I like it. At I like the basket these... ingredient, but, it, but you're throwing me into, you know... I was gonna do like a because I know oh, there's I'm, asteroids. So I'm I was throwing like, you into something, Moz. You want to hear my my? Uh, okay. You want me to go first? I just feel like I'm un, I'm ill prepared as usual. But go ahead. Well, we're all used to that all by right. now. That's true. But uh, so a bucket, a nano self-replicating biobots that will take whatever form you program them for. That is our ingredient. So what do you make of that? Or should I say, with that, Moz? You can make anything. I. I'm going to steal some of your DNA, Moz. Wow. Program the Xenobots to take the form of Mecha Moz, <laughs> whom I would then feed to all the cryptids of the paranormal realms, and they would all absorb your knowledge and power. What do you think about that, Moz? That's very Cicery. It's like Tech Yak Cicery of you. Yeah. You're yeah, like the, the totem animal yeah. I never wanted. <laughs> I, it's making the entire universe my tech yak. Wow. My yak is the universe, Moz. Yeah, and it has my DNA in it, too. You had to bring me into this. Yeah. Terrible way. Yeah. But you're also making up rules, which I think we should go with. I like it, actually. But This is this is Wolfman Pucks. I don't think there are rules. Yeah. Okay. No, it's fine. But oh, and for the beverage. If you say I, what I'm going to say, I'm going to be mad at you. Addictivo tequila. But oh, that's no, for okay. me to drink while I watch the cryptids consume your mecha corpse. Wow. That's yeah. dark. Yeah. You went dark. You went dark satellite on me. Yes, there. I am I am very <laughs> evil alien overlord now. Yes. I have taken on the presence of the evil alien overlord. No. I don't I don't have one. Yeah, I think you won. But I do want to get my what if I just use my Xena Warrior Princess bot and I wait for that to come in the mail? You know? So you would use your bucket of 
von Neumann Xenobots not to make a feast for the cryptids, but to make yourself a real-life replica of Xeno. Because I got the Gabriella one in the mail, and that was wrong, so I'm kind of waiting for the real one to show up. So. Well, I mean, you could make actual Xena. Yeah, that's what I'm this. saying. That's like, not I'm just saying. a doll, like actual Xena. what I'm saying. And I, I would pair that with a... And I, because the whole thing is always Douglas Adamsy to me, I'm, I'm going with a Pangalactic Gargle Buster. Oh, you used that already, though. Did I really? Yeah, I used that in, like, episode seven can i just something. keep saying pangalaka all I right yes all right oh, oh oh my friend fred the uh-huh. guy who saw the ice weasels uh-huh. oh uh-huh. no 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 <laughs> <laughs> he made me drink something called the vulcan mind probe that he created Ooh. and it was really strong that's what you should drink that's here, what yeah. i should drink the vulcan, the vulcan mind, mind it's a probe, probe episode vulcan mind probe fred ice weasels Back at I'm going to have to look up that recipe now. I need to drink one of those. Well, I think it's Fred's recipe and whether he actually, this is kind of, Fred's pre-Google. I don't know if he even okay. exists on this planet, in this plane, yeah, this dimensional yeah. plane anymore. But he was, yeah, he is. I, I don't know, know how that I want to write him off. I don't have to talk to him in a while, but. That's pretty good. Yeah. I want know. that Vulcan mind probe. Yeah. I think you won, though, because I just, you, you basking and greeted me in the I last did minute. feed you to the cryptids. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I won. But anywho. In a, all right, in a terrible way. You won in a terrible Horrible. way. Horrible. I went really, really dark and you very sister. This is my sister showing. Yeah, oh, yes. I'm with you. But uh, that does it for this round. Do you have anything to add or subvert before we go here, Moz? I just want to say, when they find that probe... You were the first person, I guess, to have suggested perhaps that this thing might be feed right into everything else that's going on out there. And with its corkscrew little orbit, we'll see if that corkscrew little brain of yours actually came up with something pretty amazing. If in 2025, the Chinese announced first contact because yeah. they went to that thing. We can take it out of the Aho Guano file. I am taking it, credit for this. It pulls, it pulls out of the Aho Guano file yeah. and it gets stuffed into a scully muggle's brain yep 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 that's the way we do it i'm, I'm gonna feel like douglas adams i'll be so right yeah but anywho uh we are far enough off the rails let's wrap this tour up for the day thanks for listening everybody make sure to like and subscribe hit all those happy little fun buttons on whatever platform you're on keep track of the monster lore tour as we roll along if you enjoyed the episode please rate and give us a review that helps a lot means a lot to us in the meantime, we'll see you back here next week at the edge of nowhere for the next Monster Lore Tour. Yes, Moss. But don't taunt Happy Fun Probe. Good advice. <laughs> Until then, have a good one, listener. Coffee and beer and a microphone podcast. podcast.